Okay, ladies and gentlemen, let's just do a quick test in the chat room for a moment. I want to make sure everybody can see. It looks like we are here. I see a bunch of people bouncing around. There's Karina. There's Mary Jo. There's Wayne Smaldridge. There's Krista. There's uh, there is uh, Dandy, Nancy. Does everybody see? And here, you all there? We're not going to start until we until we get you all here. This is your first time a part of any kind of a book club. Guess what? My first book club was the first one I hosted on this show. So I didn't know what the hell I was doing, and it turned out to be pretty damn easy because the audience is great, the co-hosts are great, and here is our co-host for this wonderful ride through our uh, literary train, I don't know, what, are, what is this? What is this, a, uh, a train ride through the world of literature? Very, yes. very bad, bad, it's really corny. Lindsay <laughs> Sharman, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm so good, Frank. It's so good to be here with you and your amazing audience. And I know you know how I feel. I know your audience is so grateful for everything that you do. You're like a, a healing salve for the world of normalcy out there. You know, oh. the, the mainstream pretends it's the normal world, but the real normal people are here with us right now. So I, I'm with you. you. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. I think that this it is it has been so therapeutic to jump into the jump into this world, these different types of worlds. And you know, um, I think it'll only get better as we go through this book in particular, because as you and I were talking about before I went live, this is above all one of the greatest, now in a novel form, you know, it's one thing you can go pick up a, uh, a book about an event or whatever and just drown yourself in facts about the World's Fair. It's another thing to pick up a novel and to read a story progress and just be inundated with amazing did-you-know moments. It's like you will win so many bar trivias just by knowing this yes. book. It's great. It really is. So uh, how, about the, how about this? General thoughts. Uh, I, um, for the first 85 pages, here's what it is. I love that it opens up, first of all, with our main character, Daniel Burnham, on the Olympic, on the night of the Titanic's demise. We talk about so much about that. And he's trying to get a message to his friend, Frank Millett, one of the last surviving uh, members of this team that got together to bring the, 19, the 1893 World's Fair together, which you have the setting, it's Chicago. It's Chicago, which... Lindsay, I don't know if you got this kind of a feeling, but Chicago hasn't changed that much over the years. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know Chicago well enough to say, but that's um, sad because <laughs> they don't paint a very pretty <laughs> picture of Chicago. Everything that I've read, uh, I've never been there either, but it seems it's always been a very violent, bustling place. Obviously, there's been 125 years worth of development there. It's become a as a as a westernized city as anything else but cr we are we're given a backdrop of crime murder but a growing rapidly and in search of identity um it's always playing chicago is always playing second and sometimes third fiddle to new york and philadelphia we learn that even the name windy city is only partially a nickname that is given to it because of that sting of that westwardly current of wind that goes through there but because of all the little brother like whining that is done about how they have this inferiority complex when compared to new york city anyway they're in the race here and they win their bid to host the columbian exhibition the world's fair it is supposed to be in 1892 which is 400 years since columbus discovered america and uh, only four years, Lindsay, this is the big one, since Paris, France blew the world away with a World's Fair that included the unveiling of what was at the time the tallest structure in the world, the Eiffel Tower. And now this event is suddenly carrying the reputation of the American nation on its back. And he now here is dingy little Chicago who has to stop celebrating about winning the bid and trying to figure out how to get this thing together. And in the middle of it, you have Daniel Burnham and John Root, who are friends, architects. Uh, you have figures like uh, Olmsted, Frederick Olmsted, who designed Central Park. They're trying to assemble the dream team and uh, and and pull off the impossible in um, in what will be sounds like two and a half years. So, uh, general thoughts from you, and then we'll get into some highlights. 
Yeah, well, I, I read everything from the point of view of I'm an English teacher. And so I have a lot of interest in the content. And I also have a lot of interest in like the style and the structure and, and how it's actually executed too. But I just want to tell a quick story first. I was reading this for this book club. I've, I, I read it twice. So I've already read the whole thing. And now I'm reading each section right before we go, right? Uh, and so I'm reading this for this book club last month. And we have this random completely just we would never probably choose to go there, not for any because we don't like it, but just it's just not a place on our list of vacation. But we ended up going to Asheville for um, my guy Johnny's work. So we're going to Asheville and I'm looking around at like what I'm going to do while he's working all these days and all these fun things and whatever. And I'm like, oh, there's something called the Biltmore. I'll go there. That looks like a big attraction. So I plan to go there. And then I'm reading and I'm like, oh, <laughs> these exact same two architects designed the Biltmore, uh, the landscape architect Olmsted and uh, Burnham, the, the, the main architect of the story here. So, wow. so weird. Like it was just such a weird synchro and I'm driving up to the Biltmore and I see their names and I get in, I'm doing the tour of the house and there's giant life-size portraits of them. And I, now I feel like I just know these men and I'm like, you know, it was very, very fun. So that it, was an interesting synchronicity there. Yeah, it brings you, it gives you a little connection to a, a time in this country, which is, is so little is known about it. Um, that Gilded Age, right after right after the Civil War ends, we're into Reconstruction. It is a time of immense uh, economic booming, uh, but it's full of forgettable presidents and forgettable this and that. But all of a sudden, when you think about it, you have to ask yourself, well, yeah, who did design Central Park? Who did yeah. who did build the uh, the the Brooklyn Bridge and and what went into it? I didn't you, you don't know you don't realize how many people died building the the Brooklyn Bridge because they came down with the bends going so far down into these unpressurized places and and there's just um, there's so much that brings this this shady fuzzy time in our history to life and you start realizing that their the fingerprint of these men are all around us. And, and you start seeing it a little bit more, which I appreciate. Yeah, and the beauty of it. I, and, I, and I also have this huge compassion now for Olmsted, who feels like he never got to see any of his artwork of landscape architecture actually completed because people would interrupt it, right? It's like a 30, 40 year process. And they would be like, oh, but actually I want this rose bush here. And he's just like ripping his hair out. But to go back, you know, I love that he, um, Eric Larson, starts this book as um, basically a summary of the entire book. And I didn't really realize that the first time I was reading it, it doesn't really sink in all those details. But he basically tells the whole story in this first little intro. Um, you know, the, what, evil's imminent? No, the prologue. Mm -hmm. And then aboard the Olympic. And then I read it again the second time. I'm like, oh, this is literally every. I mean, if you had to summarize the book, this is it. Uh, but that is good writing, right? To have that unity and to start at the end. Uh, so I loved reading through it again and just um, reliving the story in this short little uh, snippet of it. But it's also interesting. He sets up so well in this beginning uh, prologue as well the main themes. Right, and they're simple themes, but they're so beautiful and he does them so well. And especially that black versus white or that evil versus good, light versus dark, right? We have literally the black city with Chicago, which is such an ominous name. Like it's so I know dark, right? And and I and I kind of feel that way about a lot of cities, honestly. And back then I probably would have felt that way even more because they were actually covered in soot and filth and bloated horses. And I mean, he paints this picture of how disgusting Chicago actually was, how crime ridden, how dangerous trolleys flying by, right? Right on just street level, um, just soot and garbage everywhere. The river is just like filled with trash and dead things and the, slaughter, oh my God, the no Sullivan Slaughterhouse. What about the Slaughterhouse? In the Slaughterhouse. That was like the main attraction for so much that the, that, that this, oh. this death, commercialized, just, just unattended death, things that just dropped dead. And then there's just commercialized death. It was a city, <laughs> what he's describing at least, is a city of death. And... Um, and and yeah, the, the the describing the the that really eerie glow from the gas lamps in the street that that are that have to fight to be seen through the smog and everything else that is just billowing in the air above, 
um, it's a, a, a really wonderful. Um, it, it, it makes you think about foggy London streets in some ways, and the fact that you know building up behind all of this stuff. The profile of the city, the, uh, the, the buzzing of the, the fair coming to town, all of the greatest architectural uh, minds of the time that are trying to, to, to coordinate themselves to how they can pull this off and the amount of time they have allotted to them, bubbling behind all of that is the sadistic mind. You have the, the, the profile that's being built on a young charismatic huckster with a taste for blood in H.H. H. Holmes who is really just conning his way through buying up city entire city blocks and the way that he he cycles through um, work crews to be able to compartmentalize people from the dastardly plans he has for this murder mansion that he is about to build in the center of town and um, the fact that this is all real Lindsay is what is so enthralling about it this is all real and it's crazy. I love that, that there's another juxtaposition there, right? That he does so well with that theme of black versus white, where he describes that murder building, which is so, it's so creepy, but he pulled it off with genius. He's a genius, unfortunately. Um, but he says, you know, this was a parody of everything architects held dear, right after describing like this greatest celebration of architecture that is going to come about with this World's Fair, right? And all these architects are working together on this. And then here's this guy, he's not only a murderer, he's like bastardizing the very thing that they are epitomizing as, you know, this great achievement. So it's so well done how those two stories intertwine and how they, how perfectly juxtaposed they actually are. Again, just it's just true, it's just reality. He didn't have to make any of this up or embellish anything. Um, and he did a really good job of finding out every single thing that happened and immersing himself in it and presenting it to us as a story. So we get to live it as this narrative. It's so fun. Yeah. As, yes. as dark as it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, so yeah, uh, now just to go through some highlights before we, we get into we get into the, the thread. I see the chat room is already buzzing. I love to see the attendance tonight. Um, so yeah, in the early goings, it's really just about how this this need we need to we can we need to be able to stave off humiliation here. Not only do we have to do a good job, we have to find a way to out Eiffel Eiffel. How do you do that? Uh, and you know, you will everybody will will see if you haven't read ahead. Everybody will see what the big idea to completely outshine the Eiffel Tower is. It is now a common sight all across the country, especially on carnivals from from uh, coast to coast. But um, the backstory, I love the backstories of uh, Daniel Burnham, John Root. For some reason, there's something very, I love books and movies that have to do with writers in New York City. Uh, especially writers who can sustain a living in New York City. I, I think it's fantastic. Like, I love the Lost Generation writers like Hemingway and, and Fitzgerald, the way that they, they just lived so so relaxed in, in Paris. And it, they're just scribbling writings all day, and they're just hang, hanging out with uh, with Ezra Pound. and all the, They're actually all, all mentioned here in one way or another. I love this. I love this from an architectural standpoint. I love thinking about two guys scribbling out uh obviously they were the best at what they're doing there's other very un unsuccessful architects at the time but i love the backstory of the architects i love how everybody's just ascending at the right time they're ready to receive these high honors of going on in there and uh and doing what they can i love the little strange tidbits in there too on page 31 here is um the tele when all of the news about the about the 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 black city getting the nod to build the white city. Look at this one over here. Uh, a, um, one telegraph boy made his way through the dark into unlit alley that smelled of rotted fruit and was silent, save for the receding hiss of the gas lights on the street he had left behind. He found a door, knocked, and entered a room full of men, some young, some old, all seeming to speak at once, a uh, few quite drunk. A coffin at the center of the room served as a bar. The light was dim and, ca- and came from gas jets hidden behind the skulls mounted on the walls. Other skulls laid scattered about the room. A hangman's noose dangled from the wall, as did assorted weapons and blanket caked and uh, blanket caked with blood. 
these artifacts mark the room as headquarters of the Whitechapel Club, named for the London slum in which two years earlier Jack the Ripper had done his killing. The club's president held the official title of the Ripper. I mean, j- just the thing about the members were journalists. I mean, so here is a uh, pretty much a a fan club, <laughs> a fan yeah. club for Jack the Ripper. I mean, these are this is this is going all. This is pretty much like a, a Tumblr. If Tumblr were a an actual place in Chicago, they can go there and <laughs> and uh, and obsess over serial killers. But then again, they were they weren't as plentiful as they are now. Jack the Ripper was known all over the world for the uh that that kind of that kind of thing but here uh here we are just getting a glimpse into the kinds of interest that the average person had it's so different right and and they talk about even earlier on that you know morality was changing at the time and and things that people wouldn't have thought were acceptable were now becoming acceptable and and so this is part of the tension of of the times that's going on but i still i'm like would you sit in a dark room with like blood and all those artifacts are from actual murders and things and and you're just so and i think they thought it was just fun and there was nothing that weird about it it's sort of like a secret society and at another point in this section they mentioned like what that there was like 50 some secret societies or something in in chicago and uh this was like a fun pastime to be a part of a secret society and nowadays if you're part of a so-called secret society you're considered you know suspect by many and i guess well loved by others but uh it's definitely not the norm anymore apparently it was then yep (laughs) people people were fine with it like yeah you can have this skull i mean that's one of the things that blew me away reading this too was just how crazy people were about bodies (laughs) <laughs> like bodies were being robbed from graves because doctors didn't have enough of them. Doctors were going out to rob graves because they didn't have enough bodies. H.H. H. Holmes himself was like designing all these plans, right, to, to get bodies, to give it, to sell the bodies. And this is part of why well, I shouldn't jump ahead, I guess. But anyways, this um, dearth of bodies, like who would have thought that you would go to all this trouble to find bodies? But, you know, they describe, he describes how uh what's it called you cut people open after death i'm the autopsy word autopsies were all the rage right suddenly like that was not a thing before and now it was like oh we can cut up bodies we can learn more about the human body let's do it well we also we also know that that bodies the the ability to access bodies and find them um were uh was was really critical for engaging in insurance fraud too uh, we, we, that's that's one of the early uh, cons that we we learn about H. H. Holmes. He's scamming people out of everything. We can see that he he pretty much um, you know charmed his way into taking away the that pharmacy from uh, Mrs. Holton, which obviously, as we can we can all surmise, he killed her afterwards because she just stopped showing up, and he told everybody that she moved to California. But um, Aside from the fact that he was already satisfying some sort of a bloodlust that he had, there was insurance fraud. There was all this, and, and the bodies. Yeah, uh, he he wanted to be able to fake an entire uh, family dying. Yeah, he clearly has no problem with it. Um, and that was the other thing that was established really early on that I never would have understood without reading a book like this was how many young women were going to the cities and going to places like Chicago and stepping off the train and then never ever being seen of or heard of again. And unless you had money to hire a private, you know, investigator that was willing to go and and try to track them down, you would never know what happened. And maybe they're fine, but maybe they're not. And you don't know, we don't have telephones, right? Maybe you have access to what does he call it in the intro, the Merconi the Marconi message system, telegrams, um, or radio, but no, you don't really have a way to contact. You have letters. Uh, you hope they get there. And then, you know, maybe your daughter is just gone. She goes to Chicago and you just never see her again. So for someone like H.H. Holmes, it's the perfect scenario. Why, why not, right? You could go here, you have this plethora of young women available and nobody's really looking after them. Uh, yeah. And they tried, right? They put even like a ad out in the paper saying young young women don't respond to these ads that are you know specifically inviting like blonde buxom or whatever and you're it's like, unbecoming yeah, stay away from those ones <laughs> well here on page page 62 i made myself a note i said a little note about how he's picking targets uh hh holmes uh let me see here um the city toughened them quickly talking about the women 
The city toughened them quickly, however, best to catch them at the start of their ascent toward freedom. In transit from small places when they were anonymous, lost, though their presence recorded nowhere. Every day he saw them stepping from trains and grip cars and handsome cabs, inevitably frowning at, the sa- uh, at some piece of paper that was supposed to tell them where they belonged. The city's madams understood this, and they were known to meet uh, inbound trains with promises of warmth and friendship, saving the important news for later that they're going to become prostitutes. But um, that's why Holmes adored Chicago, apparently. Um, they, he says adored the particular how the smoke and din could envelop a woman and leave no hint that she had ever existed, save perhaps a blade-thin track of perfume amid the stench of dung, anthracite, and putrefaction. What a what a line. What a line yeah. that is, huh? So good. Wow. He's so great. He has so many of these lines that are so descriptive and use really great language. Uh and it's interesting cuz that uh is right when they're talking about Murta, right? Murta is his is going to be his second wife, it sounds like, cuz his first wife he just left behind and never never contacted again. Uh, Lovering, I guess her name is. And Murta, you know, he actually doesn't murder does he i mean for some reason he has her and a kid with her and they have like a dog or something back at her parents house and he goes to visit and brings gifts and money and never never does anything with her and that is so strange to me and she has all of these great things to say about him right he says she says he was a lover of pets and always had a dog or cat and usually a horse and he would play with them by the hour teaching them little tricks or romping with them he neither drank nor smoked and did not gamble he was affectionate and impossible to ruffle in his home life i do not think there was ever a better man than my husband murda said he never spoke an unkind word to me or our little girl or my mother he was never vexed or irritable but was always happy and free from care and then she also describes how babies loved him yeah and i'm like this is so strange because i knowing a few sociopaths at least and some you know narcissistic type people animals and babies don't tend to like them as much in mics but they loved him and clearly he was a psychopath it's yeah. a confusing thing and, and it's confusing that he has her in his life to some degree at least and doesn't get rid of her unlike uh, every other person <laughs> as as you go throughout as you go throughout this uh this this book what the first time i read through it it he really reminded me especially you know we'll see toward the end when he's you know he's trying to appeal to to public uh opinion and all that i'm like this guy is james comey uh this guy this guy is we our government is filled with hh H. holmes you know and and especially in the way that he just kind of floats in and out of trouble and we're talking about dire issues krista in the chat room said was he now this is a spoiler question krista so i'll just say yeah, oh, whatever. Was he exceptionally brutal in his killings? Oh, we're going to get around to a lot of that. I mean, there's a <laughs> there's a reason why he wanted. He was constantly jipping uh, people who were coming in to build his homes that he was uh, creating, and and how they were very intricate sub, uh, you know, uh, uh, below the the street level, and then all of the different shoots, all the different secret uh, passages, everything, gas lines. It's. Uh, I remember the first time reading through this. It, there are some. There are some points in this book that you become a little sickened. A little sickened just when you think about the people who had their lives snuffed out in the way that he was looking to do it. But um, I. I think that again, the fact that this was all naturally starting to build up while the bidding was being put in for the World's Fair to be there. That was already. This was not some. This. It, it just became a convenient thing that not too far away in Jackson Park in this very sandy, swampy area that they decided we're going to erect a shining white city out of nothing in in a miraculous uh, uh, in a miraculous amount of time that he was just, Holmes was just there, not too far away um, building a murder mansion that could just be receiving people as they came in and as we know this brought in millions and millions of people this fair um this world's fair over a couple of years the highest attended day that was recorded was seven hundred thousand people in one day wow, back then yeah yeah in one day seven hundred thousand people so you just don't you just don't know now getting back to the fair now what becomes evident 
especially around page 48, the becomingness. This is when you start realizing that, oh my gosh, I, me, as someone who plans and tries to be meticulous about my work, the, Lindsay, what does the procrastination and the time suck do to you? The, uh, this, to, to see the clock ticking and to see how they don't have anything going on, nothing, it, it's the assembling the team is painstaking. It, it's just, oh my gosh, it kills me. It really kills me. Oh my me. God. I can't even handle it. Like I am so much not that. I've never procrastinated anything in my life. I don't even understand it. Like it's just not, it's not desirable. And I enjoy getting things done, I guess. But to watch that going on and on top of it, all of the childishness where people were like, oh, why aren't you doing it over here? Or why, why do you like us? And why are you hiring this person? And like, da, 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 and all the bureaucracy and the politics of it. I'm like, this would be so maddening, but it's also so human because mm-hmm. that's how people are. They're like, well, let's have all these committees and let's do all this. And I love that some of the architects that um, Burnham started inviting were like, no, not because I don't want to, but because I don't want to have a bunch of committees to answer to. I want to just either do something or not do it. And so he had to actually promise them, no, you'll just, you'll be able to do anything you want. You have full freedom. Like, please just come and do this and build this amazing accomplishment of humanity with us. Now in the, in the coming, in the coming chapters after what we've done is when we're really going to get into that accomplishment the erecting of these structures we're talking about i mean j- just that one oh man i forget the building of oh, the uh liberal arts one the, 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 i think it was the liberal arts one that was able to house i don't know how many different types of things all in it was just enormous the way that they they described it was it. like the largest freestanding building in the world i want to say I, at this point i should have gotten that but you know what i love Especially when we get into Olmstead, Frederick Law Olmstead, they um, they want to bring him in to design the landscape, and I love here. And as you said before, um, in laying out Central Park, we determined to think of no result to be realized in less than forty years. The fact that they were putting their mark on something that they know that they would not live to see the real the real beauty of it all. But listen to this. Uh, James Ellsworth, who went out to try to get Olmsted to sign on for this, insisted that what Chicago had in mind was something far grander than even Paris Exposition. He described for Olmsted a vision of a dream, a dream city designed by America's greatest architects and covering an expanse of at least one-third larger than the Paris Fair. Ellsworth assured Olmsted that by agreeing to help, he would be joining his name to one of the greatest artistic undertakings of the century. Now, that is important because this right here about i loved how i can understand this now when we see somebody going out there as a horticulturalist or whatever they're going to put some shrubs in there oh we have some empty space over here let's put some tulips or whatever but listen to this part i loved this olmstead did think about it and began to see the exposition as an opportunity to achieve something for which he had fought long and hard some page 50 but almost always with disappointing results Throughout his career, he had struggled with little success to to dispel the perception that landscape architecture was simply an ambitious sort of gardening and to have his field recognized instead as a distinct branch of the fine arts. Full sister to painting, sculpture, and -and brick-and-mortar architecture, Olmsted valued plants, trees, flowers, not for their individual attributes, but rather as colors and shapes on a palette. Uh, formal beds offended him. Roses were not roses, but, quote, flecks of white or red modifying masses of green. I loved that. I, I really appreciate that. And I can understand being involved in something for a reason that other people just can't grasp the depth of. Yeah. And I, I, I loved I loved that, uh, that little homage to, to why he did things, Olmstead. I feel like this is the torture of every true artist, right? You have this vision and you want to carry it out and you you know you can do it, but it's like never going to be quite right. But with him, it's even worse because it, it's never going to be quite perfect, but it can't actually be because again, yeah, like someone's going to interrupt it along the way of those decades that will come to pass. Uh, poor Olmsted. I wonder if over there at the Biltmore in Asheville, he actually did get close to that because maybe it did 
you know, stay truer to his vision uh, over all those years that had people uh, attending to it day to day. I mean, that place is still just outfitted to the nines. It's pretty amazing. But I also, right next to that page on page 51, they describe how sick he was. Um, and he was constantly dealing with this illness and it, they never give a, a name to it. And what's really fascinating, if you I don't know if you ever read uh, Invisible Rainbow, um, but it's about the um, you know beginning of electricity of radio waves first and then the telegraph and then um, you know, and further and further into the electric and it documents all of the disease that started happening at the same exact time and these diseases would spread faster than people could move so people were trying to figure out well what's carrying the disease and a lot of people at the time were like well it's obviously these brand new radio you know transmitters and poles or these brand new telegraph you know wires and things and it has to be this because it's the only thing traveling faster than people all the birds are dying, all of these things are happening. So it doc that book, Invisible Rainbow, documents this really well and how people used to have the understanding that there is such a thing as electric sensitivity and electric uh, illness. And it had all these different names. And when they're describing his sickness and his illness and all the different things he experiences, it sounds to me like he might have had that. <laughs> it's the exact same thing and it's at the exact right time in history. You know, and now we're sensitized to it and only the strong survived. And so all of us who are here have some level of innate sort of, I guess, protection towards that maybe. But back then when it was new, a lot of people didn't. And it was really, really um, harsh. That, well, that's a really, that, that's, that's really well said and really well, uh, I, I, I would have never gone there to tie that together. It, me, I, I was taking note. I was taking note of how everybody is in just poor health. Sometimes, yeah. you know, Burnham, when he's, you know, his foot is killing him on the Olympic and the, in the prologue, and he attributes it to many years of, you know, vices like drinking or whatever. But it seems like everybody's teeth hurt. I'm like, oh, yeah. God, the, the, the hurting teeth. I feel it, it's, uh, <laughs> it's something <laughs> that just grinds on me, and I, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if what you're suggesting is a major factor that nobody would even think to to bring up um oh here here's a since we were you know you're on page 51 on 52 i had a highlight here is a a, a fun little quote from the great rudyard Klipping, uh, kipling rudyard kipling about about chicago uh, let's see here. And just before the heat wave in Chicago, a rising young British writer had published a scalding essay on Chicago. Having seen it, Rudyard Kipling wrote, I desire never to see it again. It is inhabited by savages. That's <laughs> so awesome. My God. He's like, I don't give a shit. This place sucks. <laughs> a, this is 1892, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Jeez Louise. But, um, no wonder they're sensitive and they want to prove themselves that they can be just as as cool and as posh and as sort of up scale as the East Coasters. Yep. There's all these people attacking them all the time. Yep. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's true. Um, now, now it's, eight, it's October of 1890, and they still have the site of the question is unresolved. They have not, that is on page uh, 56. That's when we're starting to seeing, oh my gosh, they don't even have the site. And then they have to assemble the team. So on top of all the procrastination is the, also the fact that there is, seems to be some kind of a global economic recession brewing. And um, in a lot of the ways after that, we are getting a, a, a fuller picture of H.H. Holmes, a dizzying level of deception that he has on everybody around him um and then a after that it's just the hunt for the architects that's around page 78 there um burnham is going to new york to try to bring people in they're playing coy they want everybody wants their ego stroked it's just like come on man don't you want to beat france can we just all get together and beat france and um and that's really where we are by the end of page 84. And now we're staring a hotel for the fair in the face. We'll talk about that later on. Do you have any other highlights that you have over there, Lindsay, before we jump into what the audience has put into the thread? I have so many that we would never get to them all, but <laughs> none that I think we haven't at least uh, touched on enough, Okay, I would say. Uh, 
I did just also, you know, people in the conspiracy world will talk about these big fair, or sorry, these big fires that a lot of these cities had. And it's mentioned here too, somewhere in this section of the Chicago fire of what, wasn't it right before all of this, like 1891 or something? I think um, 1880s or, or right after oh, okay. 1870. It, it was, it was close. It was, it was within a couple of decades. So people always talk about like, yeah, right. How did every single city like burn to the ground and da, da, da. there's gotta be something else going on here. And I'm like, well, when you're reading this, you can see as we're talking about all of these gas lights and all these gas lines and there's gas everywhere. And so if there's one problem anywhere, all of that system can become a con conflagration. Uh, and of course the city could burn down. There's right, this old technology of transporting gas to every single light source in every single home. I'm, I'm sure that that could be a very good reason why everywhere burned down. But <laughs> I like this book because it dispels a lot of actually those conspiracies that float around about the World's Fair, about, you know, Jack the Ripper and H.H. Holmes and about the gas thing, which I guess a lot of people would then say, well, of course it does. Of course, isn't that convenient that it mm -hmm. dispels them all? But I'm like, you can't read this and read all the details that Eric Larson packed into this and imagine that they're made up. Like that's insane. No, that is not the simplest answer. And, and you know, <laughs> and, and you know, as somebody who's read this book more than once now, uh, <laughs> we have not even hit it. We have no. <laughs> not even hit the ground yet. For those of you who have not read ahead, you are going to. We're all about to get just doused with incredible anecdotes about this really when all is said and done um we can call it mysterious now because it's 125 some odd years later but it was all i mean it was it had in, it, it had it captured the entire world's attention there was nothing mysterious about it it was it was marvelous but the fact that there was only one standing structure left from that entire endeavor that was put together in such a, a, a quick way by some of the greatest minds who have ever built anything on the earth. Um, it has become mysterious in the century plus uh, since it's, uh, it's wrapping up. So um, it, this is going to give you so much more of a reason why people saw this for the marvel that it was. Even the, even the rejected ideas the rejected ideas are are pretty are pretty bold, and um, they well, like, wait until you see what some of the suggestions were to have that one object, that one thing that is going to outdo the majesty of the Eiffel Tower. I mean, they had to find something that could outdo that or at least compete. And there is a lot of ideas that you'll see that are rejected uh, coming up that are just like, whoa, <laughs> they wanted to attempt that. Um, anyway, well, you see a sign of the times, right? Like that back then people were willing to like go to the extreme and, you know, even Burnham built himself a little cabin on the grounds to like live in so that he could make this happen, sacrificing what of his life. And we can't imagine that today because we're comfortable, entitled, right? Little like we saw, I mean, I'm not saying we here do, but in general as a society, we can't imagine sacrificing ourselves for something greater than us or beautiful or that will stand against the test of time. So we look back and it does seem even more mysterious. Like, yeah, right. They worked that hard and built all of that. And like, sure they did. It's like, no, I mean, if you were there at the time, like you were saying and got caught up in the imagination of that, you might too. You might have had something in you that wanted to achieve greatness. I'm sorry you don't right now, <laughs> like, right? Uh, well, yeah, because what was what was the rallying cry for this? You had a obviously there were cities competing and there were saltiness when one would win out over the other ones, and they're just like, you know what, you won. Go fuck yourself. You know, yeah. go, 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 you know, on your own. Don't ask us for help. Go ahead, and you better do it right. But what really, really was it all about? It, it, everybody wanted to show off. They wanted to show how great we were. They, their, their pride was was first and foremost. And we are at a time right now where we're being taught, new generations today are being taught to dial back the pride, to denounce the pride, to actually start crawling for the teepee again. And, and that we've already hit the top of where we were going to go and, um, and, and we need to find a way to go back in time to something more primitive, more sustainable, because we've only gotten as far as we did because of really toxic notions of, of supremacy and exceptionalism and all. So there is a, the culture, like you say, the cultural differences 
between the end of the 19th century and where we are right now, that's the reason why we were able to do so much with far less, especially economic. I mean, you think about the economic power that we can put behind a project like this now, the, the, the technology to build this stuff now, the fact that this was so, so different, but they had the fucking spirit, and that's the, that's a, excuse my, my language, uh, <laughs> they had the spirit. Yeah, we can't even imagine it now. It's, it's absolutely true. We can't imagine it. It's a shame. Those things are exactly what, you know, could make something great, and instead we're like, well, will it make us money? No. Okay. Well, then, no, we're not going to do that. Right. <laughs> we can't. We cannot even imagine it. Well, here is the first. Uh, here is the first entry on the thread. This is from, quite frankly, producer. That's Krista in the chat room. She said this. Much like our modern-day elected officials, the planners associated with constructing the Chicago World's Fair were inept at the most basic of tasks. It took them months and months to even decide on a location. I know, it makes my skin crawl. It really does. When time was of the essence, this further raised suspicions for me. It was astounding to read that they actually considered building the fairgrounds inland when Lake Michigan was clearly the main attraction. It It was mentioned that New York had proposed the land around the Palisades along the Hudson as a venue for the fair. For those who aren't familiar with New York, this part of the country that you don't hear enough about. Remarkable natural beauty not far from Manhattan. I think about uh, I think about I think of a lot of people would be surprised to see how dramatically the landscape shifts as you move even a short distance away from New York City. I enjoyed reading about Frederick Law Olmsted, who was the famed landscape architect who designed Central Park. He was also designed the grounds of my dream house in Pittsburgh area and my university's campus. Page 49, Olmsted reservations in agreement, uh, uh, her, his reservations in agreeing to take part in the rush plan for the Chicago's World Fair. He says, I have all my life been considering distant effects and always sacrificing immediate success and applause to that of the future, he wrote. In laying out Central Park, we determined to think of no result to be realized in less than 40 years. 40 years. The architects and builders of our past had a vision and uh, reverence for the longevity and semi-permanence of their projects. In contrast, today's world is much more aligned with the idea of cheap construction, poor planning, and less consideration for classic beauty. Well said. Very well said. Uh, I think there's, uh, Lindsay, you've probably seen it. There are some very big accounts out there who are obviously very interested in architecture in themselves, and they do a lot of the, 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 the split screen between rejecting modernity and going back to classical beauty and all that and the symmetry and um, compared to almost like this Soviet-style cement hell, concrete hell that we're living in right now. It's so, it was interesting to read about that exact tension between the architects of the time of like, oh, you're just regurgitating this like Greco-Roman old stuff and like we need something new, which I guess is these boxes with no ornamentation, (laughs) right? Who was it? And there's someone in here, one of the architects said, form should follow function. Like once it's doing what it's supposed to do, then you can add some flourishes. And, you know, uh, it's interesting to see that, that shifting as well. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know what I, I just realized, too? I have... Hold on. I think it's in the beginning of this book. I think they put an, uh, a map. Yeah, they put some map. They put a map yeah. there so you can visualize the campus. But I have... And it's two, massive. It is. <laughs> That's crazy. I have two PDFs, though, that have got to get to everybody in this, this book club that have to do with the, the fairgrounds. And I have to go and, and try to figure that out. But... um. Here's a new one. Jalen Wennings said on page 17, second paragraph, the words, daylight faded to thin broth. I have that underlined too. It's such a beautiful and also kind of disturbing, but like really effective sentence. He says, I have no idea why, but I felt these words. Obviously, recollection of these words could be under different circumstances than what they pertain to in the book, but they are a testament to how the author can make you relate to the surroundings with a simple phrase. 
He's so good. He's such a great author for that exact reason. I have so many things underlined that are just beautiful language and examples of exactly that, like pulling you into the scene so deeply that you just feel like you can exactly imagine it to the point where I'm like looking up, like what's a phaeton, if that's how you even pronounce it. And what's the Pope safety bicycle? And what is a grip car? Like all of these things. But when you see it, you're like, oh, those are the things we've, I've seen them so many times in fact, but I've never actually been immersed in the time where they were everywhere. And, and now I have been because of how well he writes. Well, the safety, the, the Pope safety bicycle, that's just really the bicycle with, with two uh, similar sized. Uh, yes. Yeah. Because of course we all get the, the, the old, um, the big, the, 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 big <laughs> the big first wheel, the small, the, the small second one, the caricature bike that we all thought was a joke, but that was the real first I mean, what the hell were people thinking? I what guess it was... was it? Yeah, like, how did you ride that? Johnny just told me those are called penny farthings, I guess. The big, uh, the big wheel. The big and the, the small? Wheel. Okay, penny farthings. So then I wonder if it was more of a circus carnival kind of a, a thing and, and not meant to be practical at first. Was that? Well, the... I, ha I have this advertisement for it right in front of me, and I, it sounds like it's meant to be just for anyone to ride. That's... And I think there was probably so many accidents and injuries on it that that's why they called the regular, you know, equal sized wheel bicycle, the safety bicycle, so the Pope stupid. safety bicycle. So stupid. So uh, stupid. Well, I'm glad they got to the safety bicycle. That's uh, that that's good. Yeah. We, they finally did something right. Um, let's see here. Gal 2, 2021 says the author builds a sense of dread in his uh, in the reader as he begins to tell us about the mudget about mudget homes. On page uh, on page eleven, Larson says about Holmes that his murderous career was a harbinger of American archetype. Oh, I mean maybe this is a uh, an, an index page was a uh, harbinger of an American archetype, the urban serial killer. There are so many quotes I could cite here, but one of the more attention-grabbing ones for me is this, quote, by his own assessment, he was a mother's boy. Page 39, the parallel story of the great endeavor to the construct, um, uh, the, the endeavor to the construct, the, be, uh, the biggest and the best World's Fair ever seems to come from a drive to break away from the old, to do a reset, perhaps, and to rise to a new era of man's achievement and glory, why did these two stories inter intersect in time and location? That is a curious question. It is incredible. And that's, again, why um, the fact that this is all real and it is all happening at the same time, it is, it is just the, the perfect... Eric Larson seized on the perfect story. Yeah. It's just... Well, and there's... Yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. No, that's all. Well, there's one more thread too that we forgot to mention, uh, and it's the so on the, the the title is actually the Devil in the White City, Murder, Magic, and Madness at the Fair that Changed the World or Changed America. And so, murder, obviously, H. H. Holmes. Magic is the creation of this stunning white city, which is the juxtaposition to the black city. And then, madness is this character that just kind of bobs in and out of the story every once in a while, and then becomes crucial right towards the end of everything. But this is this man who seems slightly insane uh, and he writes a lot of postcards to a lot of officials and he feels very much like they should hire him, write him back, take his word as law and you know act upon his advice and that he's actually having this very important role in the city uh, which ends up becoming um, a matter of deep resentment later on. So there's a third storyline here as well. and. I do think it's the less important one, but again, it does come up as crucial very late in the story. So he weaves all three of those things together and they all three intersect in this profound and insane way. It just changes the entire tone of the event. In fact, the World's Fair itself. Are you talking about the Prendercast yes. character? Cause, yeah, because yes. I, I had forgotten about what his role in all this was. Yeah. <laughs> but in the first 84 pages, he gets you his don't... introduction again. And I, I was right. saying, wait, who the hell is this Prendergast guy? He's a he's a media, local media guy? What the hell's going on? None of his newsboys like him, and he doesn't like them. And all right, well, I guess I'm just going to have to store this one in the back of my head. So we'll see when yeah. that pops up. You know, I'm looking for this. Uh, maybe you know what I'm talking about, Lindsay, but there's we're talking about lines that kind of stick with you and kind of send a chill through your spine it was a um it was an interaction between holmes and one of the women he was he was trying to dupe 
and yes. and he had pretty much asked her he just asked her to trust him and and he said don't don't be afraid don't be afraid of me or, or don't be afraid of me or something like that and she said and it terrified her and I'm yeah, trying she to... wasn't afraid until he said don't be afraid of me and then she was like oh yes now i'm afraid i, I, I wish i could uh, man i thought i had it all i have it as well Wait, in fact, I... I was just looking at it and then it flipped to another page. come on man i know <laughs> there was a pause gathering terrified Oh, here it is. Page 73. Oh, I was way off. Yeah, a woman named Strowers occasionally did Holmes laundry. One day he offered to pay her $6,000 if she would acquire a $10,000 life insurance policy and name him beneficiary. If anybody does that, it's like, you know the implications of that? Why does this guy want to make $10,000 off of my death? Wow. What? Um, so that is usually when you say, I'm not showing up to work tomorrow, I'm leaving. But still, when she asked why he would do such a thing, he explained that upon her death, he'd make a profit of $4,000, but in the meantime, she'd be able to spend her $6,000 in whatever manner she chose. To Mrs. Uh, Strowers, this was a fortune, and all she had to do was sign a few documents. Holmes assured her it was all perfectly legal. She was healthy and, exper- and expected to live a long, good while. She was on the verge of accepting the offer when Holmes said to her softly, don't be afraid of me, which terrified her. <laughs> I mean, out of all those that you think that the life insurance policy would be enough, but for him, yeah. to, you know, those are, the, those are the little cutaways that stick with you in this in this book they they really do yeah. don't be afraid of me there's the one too where he describes you know his eyes as being this like piercing clear blue and there's something about that that has been associated with psychopathy over and over again and i'm not going to say that every psychopath has those but a lot of them do and it's very because it's not as common in the population as it seems to be with especially like the murderous kind of psychopaths why do they have these like stunning clear blue eyes that that capture you you look at them and you want to like look for you're like oh that's really right whenever we see this this color of eyes we're sort of like captivated by them uh and he has those he has in fact all of these mannerisms that especially a woman might love he's very suave and he's very good looking apparently and he presents himself very confidently and all of this and i love too how they describe how he'll like He'll just touch you when he's not really supposed to like there's no clear rules written out about how you interact with women but it is kind of understood like you don't touch a woman and he just will touch a woman and then she feels sort of like invigorated like oh no one's ever touched me before i mean it'll just be like a tap on the hand or the arm or something it's not you know perverse but at that time it wasn't done and so he's like pushing these boundaries and this is another psychopath thing he's just pushing the boundary pushing the boundary pushing the boundary and every boundary invasion that you allow shows him how much he can take advantage of you yeah right and how much he's got you in his snare so he is so good at this right like you were reading that part about how he picks the perfect victim and then he grooms the perfect victim and then till he can really trap the perfect victim absolutely absolutely that 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 oh, grooming the, the grooming is constant it's nonstop and e- and even um and even in relocating his wife to clerical duty upstairs because she was starting to become a little jealous of how um he was interacting with all of the fawning young girls that were coming in to uh the pharmacy which you know that's the other thing i get from all these uh these things uh lindsay I, i'm reading books like this and they're they're describing you know piercing blue eyes and women are just hanging all over these guys and you, you uh, then you see a picture of them and you're you're expecting Fabio or something like that and you're just like come on really that guy hey this guy <laughs> yeah. what the hell well, why did I ever have trouble with anything in my life what the hell is going on here he's not really that good looking I mean, he's actually kind of I don't know man it's it, it, there's but I guess to a standard of of the time i you just expect something different um you really do i just don't understand i'm sure that um he would be able to find himself somebody but to be the beatles i mean to to have to be just 
dripping with girls that just want <laughs> to, to want something from him. I just I just didn't understand that, but um, that's what well, we I, have. I've known a, a I'll say sociopath and, and maybe psychopath at this point in my life, and and he also was very very good at getting girls, even though he was very short and maybe he was attractive but not just like stunning like right and and definitely didn't have like a whole lot else to offer but the thing about these people is is they're so good at making you feel like you are seen and heard and like you're so fascinating you're loved and you're and so you just feel like oh wow of course i want to be around this person more like they really get me and they really know me and they're so fun and they're so interesting and they're so engaged with me which is not what most people are like most people are like hi and like, yep. <laughs> right, that's it. Like this person is like, really wants to know you and they study people like a subject and they're, and so they're, they're perfect. Their manipulations are perfect because they're so well crafted to get you to love them. And you were saying like how he just seemed to be able to make like police go away and fraud charges go away and people who wanted their money back from loans just go away because of those exact same skills. and women were the same they're no different so even if he was ugly he probably could have done it because he has those those skills they're very effective mm -hmm. yeah unfortunately uh, unless you know and you're looking for it right oh yeah well, well we know if i you, you can definitely make up for uh being a little bit less aesthetically pre pleasing than somebody else with personality there's no yeah. doubt about it uh, people have have scored catches way what you would think would be way out of their league just based on what kind of a, an energy they beam, a magnetism. There's, there, there's that. And, of course, when we talk about charisma and serial killers, I mean, you think of somebody, you think about the magnetism of Ted Bundy where, uh, you know, I mean, at his sentencing hearing, the, uh, the, the judge sounded like he was, uh, he was remiss. He couldn't hire him. You know, it's just like after, it's just, it's just the way it is. So you have to give him credit for that. Um, NJSF, this is the last one we're going to read in, though. There's so many great things. And this is why I say, ladies and gentlemen, um, I bounce around with these, the, the threads here. We, I try to keep these sessions to an hour so they're palatable. Um, but you got to get into these threads. Talk to other people in the threads. Add somebody else's stuff. Talk. Get, get active on the forum because it's wonderful here. Uh, NJSF said, I'm, well, see, my, my hold on, my, uh, <laughs> my your alarm is going off. My lava lamps just turned off on me because I have a nine thirty uh, timer. Hold uh. on, but it's okay. I have these. I have these all set up with my um, with my app over here. I can turn them back on with my phone. I am enjoying the buildup on this book. I see it structured as a docudrama. These first few chapters concern mainly with setting the stage to the actual action. Right from the prologue, tie-ins with the Titanic captured me, found interesting the mention of the Olympic and the Titanic. On the setup for the drama, I found the context switching from the general city ambiance to the politics and the motivation for the fair, and the details of the life and the protagonist well-placed, uh, giving useful information and many times building on each other. The overall description of Chicago at the time and specific fascination with Jack the Ripper was something I had not initially thought of. After all, the Jack the Ripper events of 1888 were very close in time to the fair in 1892. The description of the Whitechapel Club with their media membership reinforces the sense of depravity of how now very clear to many, as well as the grim, uh, the grime of big cities. Yeah, you think about what kind of uh, covens control the media these days. <laughs> I, 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 I guess big cities and big events have a way of attracting ambitious people. The following line jumped out at me. Max Weber likened the city, Chicago, to a human being without, with his skin removed. Yes, a human being with his skin removed. God. There's just no, what does that mean? I guess there's just no dignity. Left. Or it's just raw. Like raw. there's no, like they're not hiding anything. It's like, here's my guts. Like what? <laughs> Take it or leave it. <laughs> Gosh. God. If anybody reading this from Chicago, I, I, I bet you any money they're not even offended. They're probably just like, yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah. 
Uh, that's why we love it. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we love it. It's a, the influx of young women wanting to prove themselves with a fertile ground for the evil to sow and harvest. When it was mentioned that the gr- the crime across the country was on the rise, I questioned if it could be more a moral crisis post Civil War as the federal supremacy was enforced. The imagery of the telegraph as the day's uh, C-SPAN was captivating to me. Yes. Even more, it was to see this people's engagement in politics, even if it for uh, even if for what is arguably a vanity issue. Thinking of it, the book argues that pride, envy of the French fair was the motivation for the event, with the roots on those cardinals or with the with the roots on those cardinal sins. Is it a surprise that evil is attracted? Or, or the evil that it attracted. Of note to me was how even Chicago politics was dysfunctional. I guess it should be no surprise. We all know of the Tammany Hall in New York. And, of course, how current is Kipling on Chicago when he says, the desire never to see it again. It is inhabited by savages. Then he goes to the Olmsted line about 40 years. And then uh, after that, so lacking, to, so lacking today is the consideration for second and third order effects. Immediate gratification is the name of the game. And I, uh, I agree. And there's a lot of back and forth going on there. Here's another one from Johnny Nada. Chicago Herald reporter Teresa Dean mentioned briefly in DITWC wrote a book called The White City Chips, 1895. It's a compilation of her columns covering the World's Fair. Interesting ground view from the turn of the century perspective. She was also the first female war correspondent corresponding on the Spanish-American War, Hidden History. Larson's good at it. Hmm. You see, there, I don't know if you looked into, Lindsay, if you looked into uh, Larson's other uh, titles since this, since this one. I have two of his other books I haven't read yet, and I have given his books without reading them to other uh, people in my life for Christmas gifts because depending on what the theme of the book is, because of the way that this is written, I trust him now yeah. just, to give me, just to give me something that is fun and really informative. Definitely. No, I haven't looked into it. I would also love to read those. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I do. I do want to uh, just point out too those young women who are coming into the city also sort of shocked me where, again, right now, I feel like it's almost the opposite where people are like, can I please get out to the country? Like, can I just have a farm somewhere? Just have a little plot somewhere? Like, can I get out of the city? And it was the reverse back then they were like can i please get out of this farm town and just into the city and like do something with myself and experience the big life and very very different i mean i do still think that happens today but it sounds like it was happening in droves back then absolutely yeah um let's see here seven summer 711 thank you so much uh, i just want to mention some people who we didn't read from right now 26 ahab thank you um Katie Sky tells of a story of knowing someone as cunning and, uh, and unscrupulous as Holmes. This guy can convince anyone of anything and make the most audacious requests of people who will surprisingly comply, and then some with glee, only to find themselves completely taken advantage of and at times ruined when all is said and done. So, um... I'm really digging the whole World Fair planning and designing aspect of the book as well. As a serial killer portion. Now, I hate, you know what? True crime is, is like the, the biggest genre in the world right now. And I have to imagine it's only going to get uh, bigger and bigger because I think more and more people are realizing that the psychopathy that is being chronicled all throughout the centuries here uh, is becoming more and more prominent, more and more naked, and more and more in control. Uh, so this really goes into all of that. All right. Well, that's all I have over here. Lindsay, do you have any parting shots on this going into next week? And then we will set the chapters for next week. Well, I, it's, it's actually interesting what you just said about that reason true crime is so, uh, popular right now and i always think about these people who are just fascinated by serial killers and they're watching serial killer shows and they're reading serial killer books and i'm always like why are you and like why are you just diving into this horror <laughs> like would you want to feel that and see that all the time but that's a really good explanation of why is is we're trying to understand this thing that seems to be taking over the world if it didn't already do that a long long ago and we're just starting to finally realize it now so to understand your enemy uh, more is more effective and that's a really good reason to understand people like holmes and other psychopaths 
but yeah I'm, I'm excited to get into the next sections i love uh their actual you know work on on getting things started and getting things constructed it is fascinating when i was reading this the first time the parts about homes were the more exciting things to read <laughs> so i find myself like oh, i have to I have to stay up even later and finish this part I, <laughs> what's he going to do now right like so um it's pretty it's yeah. pretty exciting stuff you know what we we need to do um i don't know uh, we have to maybe someone in the audience can do this um I don't know, maybe someone like NJSF, who is always very, very detailed in his uh, book club analysis and always excerpts and stuff like that. I don't know. I don't want to put this on any one person, but I would love to start a to compile a list of all the things that we are about, all the did you knows, all the DYKs that are about to come up on our because the technology that was invented sometimes just to like for not, not that it's a spoiler, but things that you'll realize that the first time they ever used spray paint was for these buildings to get that well, that white sheet like they they invented new things so many things on display we need a did you know list and one of them was we didn't even mention was in the section was skyscrapers like they they had to deal with that technology of chicago being this like mud pit basically and especially for the world's fair because they're building it on like a, a swamp it sounds like and yeah. so that technology of working with that type of land is how it was burnham right who created the methodology to be able to create these skyscrapers yeah. i had no idea the term no the idea. Ter it, it seemed like the term was coined because of that 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 uh, that building that he built and um you know they go through all of the different uh, prototypes that they were creating for the base because of everything was just so sandy and wet at the with you know below the surface of the the ground over there in Chicago that they had the the pyramid scheme where everything can be you know flat and displace all of the whatever and then there was yeah. um the, I, it, it just incre you, you're learning things here i also love the the mention of uh, uh the otis elevator company um how otis that that's the first big elevator company they actually were the ones that put in place a fail safe that prevented an elevator from going into free fall our first studio building had an otis elevator it's an old oh, wow. it was an old ass freight elevator that we used to ride in all the time just for the hell of it and when i read this book and i re i said oh damn i've been in an otis hell yes <laughs> anyway okay so wonderful thoughts this was a wonderful session what i'm thinking is uh if i go ahead 75 pages about that we are looking at um i think the closest chapter title that we can go to is 161 the angel from dwight so let let us read from 84 to page 160 84 to page 160 it's a little bit less than the the first session's reading load, and um, and and uh, we'll do everything exactly the same way at the exact same time next week. And uh, Lindsay, thank you for everything tonight. This was fantastic. Oh, thanks for having me. It's super fun. Uh, this book is amazing. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Not, <laughs> I love and I love that it's it's big enough that we have at least four weeks together. I know that we we may see what we're going to do for week five because I, I know you have some obligations there. We'll work around it somehow. But, uh, you know, I'm happy that this isn't a short book because it would really suck to only do two weeks with you. This is a lot of, lot of good stuff. Yeah, great choice. All righty. All right, have a great night, Lindsay, and thank you, everybody bye. at home. See you then. all have been wonderful, and bye-bye. Um, Hold on one second, and I'll...